Well, if you weren't aware of it before now, demons reside in technology. It's a whole new doctrine. Demons in the computer. Never fails. Like last, last Thursday night when we were on the, um, when I was on the radio, we got there and we got started and none of us, we all sit there, we have a microphone in front of us, headphones on, nobody could hear anything over the headphones. And so during the first five minutes of the show, while we're trying to ask questions and act like we're cool, calm, and collected and know what we're saying, we've got a sound tech crawling over our laps because it's in a booth about six feet by six feet. and You've got a small table and three grown men and all the other equipment. And so he's crawling under the table, under our laps, over us, and we're standing up and passing cords this way and microphones this way and everything's getting tangled and we're trying to talk without being distracted, so it took about five minutes to get that worked out. So there's demons in the machinery. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening to be refreshed by the study of your word, that we might come face to face with eternal truth, that we might understand more about who you are and how you work in our lives, and that we might be encouraged by the examples of other believers in time and their advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we also pray for Those in our congregation have some special needs right now, especially for Doug and Sue and Sarah as they're traveling up to Minnesota and going to the doctors there. We pray for wisdom for the doctors, strength for them, and that uh, they will be able to correctly diagnose the problems. Father, we also pray for Jim and Phyllis Myers as they're traveling in Brazil. Pray for his ministry, that he will be able to be uh, refreshed, that he will be rested, that he will be healthy and that he will have a clear thinking as he teaches the Word. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your Word, and the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, we run into two tests, two examinations in the life of Abraham. As we have studied in the past in this series on Abraham, that Abraham is a picture of several different doctrines in the New Testament, one of which is his advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And spiritual advance in the Christian life 
spiritual, spiritual advance in the spiritual life of the Old Testament believer. It's all based on the same thing, and that is you learn doctrine, and then you, are, you have opportunities to utilize that doctrine. There are tests in the Christian life, and these tests come in all kinds of packages. And a test is always related to a volitional decision. So as I'm going through this study of Abraham, the one thing that I'm paying attention to is where do we find situations where Abraham has to make a choice to apply doctrine. And as we see this, his life just sort of unfolds. Each of these episodes in Abraham's life from Genesis 12 through uh, Genesis 24 relate to Abraham having to make some sort of decision related to something that God has promised him, something that God has told him, and he has to apply doctrine. And within the framework of the Bible, this ultimately goes down to the Abrahamic covenant and the threefold promise that God makes to Abraham there in terms of land, seed, or blessing. So we've looked at other tests in his life, starting in chapter 12. He is tested, first of all, with regard to the initial command of God to get out of the land where he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, to leave his family, to leave his uh, friends and to go to the land that God would show him. He partially obeyed God. He didn't get away from his family, but he did leave. It took him a while after he went through Haran eventually to get to the land. And then once he was in the land, God reiterated that promise. Notice there's promise, there's a test, there's reiteration of promises. So that tells us as believers that the key elements for us in the Christian life is to learn those promises provisions and principles that God's given us because that's what we're tested on in a daily basis. Life's an open book test and we need to be prepared every day and we're not going to be prepared, we're not going to keep that mental attitude sharp and strong and firm if we think that we can just be in Bible class once every now and then. And that's why we can't have class every single day But we need to be listening to the Word every day. Even if you don't have time to get a whole tape in every day, uh, you can listen for 10 or 15 minutes in the car when you're exercising, when you're putting on your makeup in the morning or whatever it may be. You have that opportunity to just listen. I, I do that frequently. I find that I sometimes I can't study for my own personal study as much as I would like, but I I just set a time schedule, 10 minutes, and I can do that. And you have to do that so that the mind keeps focused on the Word of God as the priority. We are barraged day in and day out by human viewpoint. And what I've noticed, both in my own life and in the life of many believers, is that most believers delude themselves, myself included, to thinking that we really have arrived at a level of knowledge where we're doing okay. And the fact is that until we're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, when the sin nature is no longer present, that's not true. We need that constant reminder because the wiles of the devil are extremely subtle and deceptive, and it's very easy for us to get into complacency and self-sufficiency. 
So Abraham goes through these tests. There's the test related to the initial command. Then there's a promise, a reiteration of the promise, Genesis 12:7. Then there's a famine in the land. That's another test. He failed that test. He returns to the land. There's another test related to the land, not able to support him. And Lot, God is, of course, using that test to finally separate all of his physical kinsmen from him. And then we have another test in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a test now related to the blessing provision in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12:2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And that doesn't come across in the English as an imperative, but in the Hebrew it is an imperative. God is mandating that Abraham be a blessing. And that is true for believers in the church age as well. We are to be a blessing to those around us. Now, the framework's a little different, and we'll get into that when we get to application. Last part, uh, or then verse 3, God promises Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So chapter 14 which we started last time, revolves around two tests. And both of these tests are related to Abraham fulfilling that command to be a blessing. Remember what I said in the introduction. When we are advancing in the Christian life, the tests are related to volition. Every time we have to make a decision that has to do with operating on human viewpoint or divine viewpoint, application of doctrine, or not, whether it has to do with priorities, whether it has to do with mental attitude sins, whether it has to do with overt sins, uh, whether it has to do with whether or not we're going to listen to a tape, be in Bible class, do whatever it is we know we need to do. Whenever we have a volitional decision that relates to application of doctrine, that's a test. It may be small, it may be great, it may involve uh, big issues, it may involve small issues. What I usually find is that the major issues of life revolve around the minor decisions that we make. And so the many, many times those small decisions that we make affect how we respond to the big issues. So Abraham has two tests here, both related to blessing. The first is covered in the first 17 verses, which we began to cover last time, and this has to do with the invasion of the four kings from the east. And we will just briefly review this by looking at some maps. This is a map of the Middle, Middle East, as it's known in biblical studies, the ancient Near East. Sometime around the early part of the Christian era, it becomes the Middle East. But in the ancient world, this is the ancient Near East, and it's amazing how this area has been a battleground down through the centuries, and it still is. And when we get to the map where we put the modern states on it in a minute, I want you to think about how the modern coalition of forces isn't much different from the way it's been throughout the centuries, and that this is the battleground. There is no coincidence that the focal point for all of this is this piece of property that God promised to Abraham. So this is the ancient world up here in this section. You have uh, Asia Minor or Turkey. In fact, I did the same thing now that I did last week. I forgot to uh, open up the other program. Let me just do that real quick.
This area is modern Turkey. This, in the ancient world, this was known as Asia or Asia Minor. This was primarily the arena of the Hittites, although when you get into the western part, this was, this arena was settled by the Greeks, the Ionian Greeks, in very ancient times. Greece itself is just off the map up to the upper left. This area here is the area of modern Iraq. This is the Persian Gulf down here to the lower right. This is the area of modern Jordan, Syria up in this area, and then this area here is the land that God promised to Abraham. So this gives us the overall viewpoint of the ancient world. Now, the kings that we're looking at in this passage are Tidal, king of the nations, Arioch, Amraphel, and Keterleomer. This is their spread on the map. And you see that this isn't any different in the ancient world than it is today. They, they cover the same area, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Persia. These are the same geographical areas that were arrayed against Israel in the ancient world. Here's a... Let me just skip ahead. This is the area where we're talk, discussing the uh, area of the southeast portion of the Dead Sea. You have five wadis that come in from the east, actually six on the map, but on five of them you have locations of uh, ancient settlements that have been identified as the location of the five cities of the plain. There are... There have been other and competing viewpoints, but this seems to be the best, and we'll get into some more details on these when we get into chapter 17 and 18 on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, here are the modern states. This is the same area we, we were looking at, and what we see is that if you two major cities that are the focal point of this discussion, Salem, which is a modern Jerusalem, Salem is the word for peace. Shalom is a word for peace. Salem is a form of it. Damascus, the capital of modern Syria, was a very ancient city, and this is still and continues to be throughout the ancient world a source of hostility for Israel. Sodom and the five cities of the plain are located on the southeast edge of of the Dead Sea, or what's called the Salt Sea in this text. And then we have... Two other locations, Ashtaroth and Kiriathaim, which are settlements of various tribes that are encountered by these invading kings. Now, as the kings invaded, they come in from the northeast, and they come down and they run into three groups of people, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Amim, the Rephaim, Zuzim, and the Amim. Now, these three groups of people represent uh, three enemies of Israel that become major enemies at the time of the conquest. This is the first time they're mentioned, but each of these are mentioned later in the book of Deuteronomy, which was written just before the Jews invaded into the land. And they are all said to be composed of giants. And remember, this was one of the observations, the spies made when they went into the land in Numbers chapter 13. And one of their excuses for thinking that, well, we just can't have victory 
over these Canaanites. They misread their orders. God didn't say go into the land to see if you can do it. He said to go into the land to see what is going on in the land. It was a recon mission, and they misinterpreted the Scripture. That's why it's so important to properly understand what God says, because if we don't, then we misapply it and we're in trouble. The, the Rephaim are said to be the sons of Anak, part of the sons of Anak, and mentioned in Joshua 15:13, And they were... The sons of Anak were also called the sons of Arba, who was one of the children of Heth, who was the ancestor to the Hittites. The sons of Anak, which would include all three of these groups, the Zuzim, were uh, identified with the Zamzumim in Deuteronomy 2.20, where they were said to be giants. The Emim uh, in Deuteronomy 2, verse 10, are also said to have been giants. So you have these three groups all having the same source. Now, one of the interesting things, somebody always asks me this, you get into Numbers 13, 33, and these sons of Anak are called Nephilim. Now, folks usually read that and they say, wait a minute. You know, Nephilim, aren't those the product of the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men back in Genesis 6. And yes, they are. So I just want to address, take a moment to make an end run and answer that question. Turn over to Genesis 6 for just a minute. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Oh, it's, we, we need to start back in verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, this is uh, during the period before the flood, before Noah's flood, that daughters were born to them. Then the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now the phrase in the Hebrew that's translated sons of God is the Hebrew B'nai Ha Elohim. B'nai Ha Elohim, and it uses that generic form for for God, not his personal name Yahweh, but the name Elohim. Elohim just, and the, the fact that it calls them the Beneha Elohim, that, which is B-E-N-E, actually that's sort of a E like this, Beneha Elohim, indicates simple origin. They were created by God. It does not have anything to do with uh, the fact that God gave birth to these. They were called the sons of God because God is the one who directly created them. Now, the phrase B'neha Elohim is used a number of places in the Old Testament. It's, and it's this precise phrase. It's used in uh, our passage in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. It's also used in uh, Job chapter 1, in Job 2, 1. And in every place that's used, it refers to the angels. Now, that's a basic rule of interpretation, that when you have a phrase or a word, even if it's, you don't quite understand it in one particular location, if it's always used to mean something in other places, then that must be what it means in your passage, unless there's compelling contextual reasons to give it another meaning. Well, there's no compelling contextual reason here to give it any other meaning. The only problem is that people think that, well, I can't explain how this could take place. 
Well, there are numerous things that we can't quite explain in Scripture because we just God haven't get, has not given us all of the knowledge. But it seems that the angels were able to take on a material, mortal, physical body which had all of the material, mortal functions, and as a result, they were not direct. Those bodies were not genetically related to Adam, and those bodies. Uh, could give birth, could impregnate women, and therefore they gave birth to something that wasn't purely human. And this was a satanic attempt to try to destroy the purity, the genetic purity of the human race to prevent a Messiah from coming who was 100% humanity. This was why God had to judge the earth at the time of the Noahic flood. But in verse 4 we read a description of the offspring, what appears to be the offspring of this union. And it says these, there were giants in the earth in those days. That's how the King James and the New King James translates it. There were giants in the earth in those days, and the Hebrew word was Nephilim. Now you have one of a couple of different things happening when, first of all, you can understand Nephilim to mean simply a generic term for some sort of as it's translated in the old uh, King James, just a term for giant or monster. It's not a technical term for someone that's for something that's half angel and half man. See, if you if you take it as just a normal word that's in the everyday language, meaning a a, a monstrosity or an aberration or a giant, then you don't have to you don't have a problem when it's used of the giants. In Numbers 13, it's just a standard, generic vocabulary word for monsters. Just that these monsters in chapter 6 are the product of of this union between the demons, the sons of God, and it clearly refers to demons as part of the group in um, Job 1 and Job 2, that all the angels, all the sons of God, gather before God. That That includes Satan. So the term there, sons of God, is a term... That refers, could refer to either holy angels or fallen angels, and here it refers obviously to fallen angels. The other way in which you could understand the development of the language is that the word had a technical use here in verse 4, meaning some sort of half-breed monster that was the product of angels and demons, but then when you get down to Numbers chapter 13, what happened when the, when, when the Jews saw the, the sons of Anak, it reminded them of these weird creatures that are described as the offspring back in Genesis 6, and so they called them by the same name. You see the same type of thing happening when the early settlers from England came to this continent. They had a city that they knew of back in England called Boston. So when they got here, they founded a new city called Boston. They left a capital called London, and when they landed in Connecticut and started a city there, they called it New London. They went to a new area, but they called it with names that were familiar to them that reminded them of their past. And so that would that be another way to explain it. The, the fact that they're called Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13, that these giants 
are called Nephilim does not mean that they're a product of some sort of demonic invasion at that point. That is, uh, you just have to be careful how you use terminology. But I always get that question, so every now and then I have to insert it into a class so we can avoid some confusion there. So as the uh, this coalition of forces, these four kings, invade, they sweep down through the Transjordan, they do a fish hook as they come down to the uh, dead, I mean, down to the Gulf of Aqabad, El Paran. Then they head up towards Kadesh Barnea, where they battle the Amorites and the Amalekites. And there's a little more to this than what meets the eye. When you get to the text, it says that the ba- they they fought the battle. This is in verse. Turn back to Genesis 14. This is in um, verse 7. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. And En Mishpat was the ancient term. It means a well of judgment. En Mishpat for Kadesh Barnea. And they attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizon Tamar. Now the area of Hazizon Tamar would be in this small area right here which is the area of the wilderness in southern part of Judah, uh, an area that is later referred to as En Gedi. In fact, in some of the translations, it translates this En Gedi. But this is a, a different area, but it does show that, that they're sweeping up from the southwest toward the southern part of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea area to have a major assault on the the five cities. They wipe them out. We studied this last time. They wipe them out and they flee into the wilderness. Now the term that's there, one other note you may want to put in your Bible, is the uh, place has its own Tamar is referred to in Second Chronicles 20 verse 2 as uh, also referred to as in Gedi. So that was the area where later David and his uh, mighty men would hide out. So this is an area where there are a lot of ravines, a lot of caves, a lot of hiding places. At that point, after they, the forces of the four kings destroy the five kings of the valley, they take a tremendous amount of plunder and they head north. Now remember, one of the main reasons they did this was for trade reasons. The five cities of the plains in that area, there were these asphalt pits, and asphalt was a major element needed in construction then as now, and it was used in, in Egypt, it was used in uh, Babylon, it was used up in the, throughout the Hittite Empire, and so they were, and once the, these uh, five cities refused to pay their tribute, refused to send their, uh, fulfill their trading agreement, as a vassal state by sending uh, uh, the asphalt to, the, to this coalition, they were being punished for it. Some things haven't changed. We're still fighting for oil in the Middle East. And it's still the same groups of people fighting in the same area. And what that ought to tell you, if you have historical perspective, is that there's no president, there's no UN, there's no European Union that is going to solve a problem. This problem goes back 4,000 years, and it's not going to stop until the Lord returns.
and it is going to be an ongoing problem. So we have to address this from a solid historical perspective. Okay, now, last time we saw, we were just coming to the conclusion, we saw that in verse 10 we're told that the valley of Sedim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. This would be the mountains in southern Judah. Verse 11, then they took all the goods, then they, that is the five kings, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they just wipe out the cities, gather up everything they can find of any value, destroy whatever they can, and they plunder and pillage their way through this area, and then they head north. And along with their captives, they take Lot. And Genesis 14:12, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And remember, Lot was an extremely wealthy businessman as Abram was. He was probably the second richest individual in the world at that time. So they have got quite a collection with them, along with probably all of his servants. So now they're... They have added to their numbers. This wasn't a small raiding party, as I pointed out last time. It could have been anywhere from 20,000 to 100,000. We have no indication of the size. But they, after they defeat, they head north. And then we come to Abraham's, Abram's test in verse 17. Excuse me, in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So someone escapes and gets to Abram, who is living in Hebron at the time, and Hebron is located just south, I'll put a little the circle there, just south here, south west of Salem. And this is where Abram has made his camp, and he has allied himself with some Amorites, Mamre who, and his brother Eshcol and another brother Aner. Now, the Amorites are involved in several areas here. The Amorites were people that were spread throughout the ancient world. They, they had a mass migration about this time, starting probably about 2200 B.C. Remember, Abram's born about 2166 B.C., and this, the date of this is about 2080 to 2090 B.C. And throughout this period of time, you have massive waves of Amorite migration. And so you have a number of Amorite colonies all down through the Negev in Israel. They're one of the major people groups or tribal groups living in uh, the land of Canaan at this time. You also have Amorites who are up to the northeast, up throughout Syria and over into the area of modern Iraq. And the Amorites were one of the major people. So you have Amorites who are friends of Abraham. You have Amorites who were against Abraham. You have Amorites that were always a problem for the Jews. And it's sort of like the Celtic migrations of the early part of the modern era since uh, the time of Christ. You had Celts who settled in Wales and in Scotland and in Ireland. You had Celtic groups that settled in France. You had other Celtic groups that went east and settled in Galatia. And sometimes you had different Celtic groups battle each other. 
So you had the same kind of thing going on in the ancient world with these uh, Amorite migrations. So when Abram hears this, one other note that I want to point out is when they, when they come to Abram, he's identified here as Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time they're referred to as Hebrews. And in the Old Testament, the Jews are rarely referred to as Hebrews. They're referred to as the sons of Israel. And there was another group of people in the ancient world that were known as the Apiru. We know of them from ancient sources, from archaeological discoveries. And the Apiru seemed to be some sort of marauding band of Bedouins. It's very possible, in my opinion, although I I am not an expert on this, that they may have been identified with the more with the Amalekites. But the term Hebrew is probably derived from Abram's ancestor, Eber. But there was a certain similarity of sound between Hebrew and Apiru, and so the Jews did not like to be identified as Hebrews because they didn't want to be confused with the Apiru who were who brought much trouble and devastation in the ancient world. But at this point, this is the first time we have Abram identified as the Hebrew, which indicates that he is well known. He has a, a, a stature in the, his community and in the world at that time where he is known by those around him. They come to Abram the Hebrew, and we find him living in close association with three Amorite brothers. And they are going to aid him in protection of the land. Now, Abram has a choice at this point. When he hears that Lot's been taken captive, he could just say, well, that's his tough luck. They've got 20, 30,000 men. I only have 300. There's not a whole lot I can do. Actually, it's 318, but we'll just round it off. There's not a whole lot I can do. So Abram has a test at this point, and the test is related to the mandate of God. Am I going to be a blessing to those around me or not? And so he makes the decision based on the doctrine in his soul, based on the moral courage that that doctrine has given him, to gather his men together along with the servants of his allies, Mamre and his two brothers, And they go after this experienced army that has just wreaked havoc all the way through the ancient world. And they make a decision. Verse 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. Notice they were, the text makes a point out of the fact that they're trained. They weren't just a a rabble going after the army. He had trained them to some degree, so they are prepared for a military engagement. They were loyal to him. They were born in his own house, so he knew he could rely upon them and trust them. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Of course, at this time, there was no Dan. Dan is a uh, a term that is applied to the northern part of the promised land after the Jews came in and took the land after the conquest. But it is uh, it would make sense to the Jews who were reading it at that time. So he leaves Hebron, and he heads north, and the armies meet at the site of Hobah. And this the battle is described in verse 15. 
he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah. So once he catches up with them, he has a night assault. He divides up his forces, and he probably hit them from at least two sides, if not from three, and in the, with a night attack the, and surprise on his side, even though he outnumbered uh, his forces, uh, his opposition outnumbered him, he was able to rout them, sort of like Sam Houston and the Texans at the Battle of San Jacinto. One of the most significant battles in world history, if you weren't aware of it. It was one of the major turning points in uh, the history of North America. Without that battle, we wouldn't have Texas as part of the United States and all the, te- all the oil and everything else that's been brought to the U.S. And that battle lasted 18 minutes. And it's considered one of the ten most determinative battles in all of history. And this was the same kind of thing. You had a small army, through the use of surprise, attack a much larger army, send them into a rout and a retreat, and they pursued them as far as Dan. Then verse 15, he divided, uh, then verse 6, excuse me, verse 16, after defeating them at Hobah, he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. That must have been quite a sight. To imagine all of the plunder that this, the four kings, that their army had amassed going through all these various battles all the way down through the Middle East, everything they had taken from the five cities of the plains, and all of the possessions of Lot, all of his servants, and all the, the women that they had hoarded, it must have been a tremendous sight. And Abram comes along and rescues all of them. He is functioning as a blessing to the ancient world. This takes us right back to an understanding of the commandment in Genesis 12:2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So Abram is passing this test, and he is a blessing to those around him. But the test then develops into a second test. And this is what we often find happens in our own spiritual life. We get in one set of circumstances where we are forced to make a decision whether or not we'll apply the word or, or not. And we apply the word, and then as a result of application of the word, we then move into another test. We've already seen a similar example to this. When Abram went down to Egypt, God blessed him while he was down there, even though he was in carnality, out of fellowship, and... He gets kicked out by the Pharaoh, and he and Lot have to return back up to uh, Canaan, but now they have so much, and God prospered them while they were going through the first test, so that when they go into that next test, it flowed out of the previous test. Well, the same thing happens here. Because of what Abram had done in defeating these enemies, he now moves into another form of the blessing by association test. So before we get into the next test, which revolves around this bizarre meeting that takes place in the Valley of Shavah, we will uh, look at the doctrine of blessing by association. First point, let's have a definition. What do we mean by blessing by association? Blessing by association is the extension of benefits of divine blessing 
to those in the periphery of either A, a Jew, or B, a Christian. Let's think about this logically. Blessing by association is the extension of the benefits of divine blessing to those in the periphery of either A, a Jew, or B, a church-age believer, a Christian. Therefore, it is a consequence of divine grace. It's undeserved, it's unearned, but nevertheless, there are those in the periphery of either a Jew or a Christian who receive the overflow of blessing. Second point, certain logistical blessings from God go to all Jews wherever they are on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. There are certain blessings that God is going to bestow upon all Jews simply because they are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a result of the Abrahamic covenant. The Jewish race is going to continue down throughout history because God has certain promises that he has made to Abraham that have never yet been fulfilled. So God is going to bless them, and the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant are still in effect from Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And we've studied this in the past, and the Hebrew words that are translated curse in the English of verse 3 are two different words. Two different words. And the first word for curse has to do with treating someone lightly or with disrespect. The second word has to do with a strong curse or judgment. Now, curse really is a word that shouldn't be used in English. It has other connotations, sort of a hex that somebody puts on someone else. In fact, last week on the on the radio, someone called in with a question about, well, what can we do if, in this life if, if somebody put a, a curse on a uh, on some, someone, some ancestor of ours, uh, how do we get rid of that? Can we get rid of the curse? And, and there are, uh, there's a certain segment of Christians that are taught this, that the reason you have problems with anger or bitterness or alcohol is because you've got this spirit of alcoholism or bitterness or anger or whatever it may be, and that's because, you, you know, maybe you were, uh, or your father or your grandfather was put under a curse. The Bible never addresses sin from this framework. See, just, that's just another way that modern man seeks to avoid responsibility. I'm not a drunk because I use my volition poorly and I just can't control myself. I don't get, it's not my fault I'm angry. Somebody put me under a curse. The Bible never uses curses that way. In fact, whenever you have the word curse that has any, and, and the curse has any efficacious value, God's the one who's cursing. Man can never curse another man. It just doesn't happen in the Scripture. God is the one who curses, and really, to under, if you understand the context of all of these passages, what God is doing is executing divine judgment on somebody for violation of His Word. This is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We talk about the serpent is cursed. The serpent is cursed more than all the other animals because of God's judgment on the serpent for his involvement in the fall of man. You have the same kind of thing here, that if anyone treats Jews lightly or in a disrespectful manner, then God is going to judge them. It's part of God's uh, provision of protection for the Jewish race down through history. 
So our second point is to recognize that there are certain logistical blessings from God which go to all Jews irrespective of their spiritual condition. doesn't matter if they're saved, unsaved, advancing, declining, whatever it may be. If they're Jewish, they're still God's chosen people. And by virtue of that, God is going to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. Point number three, blessing by association in relation to Christians. Blessing by association in relation to church-age believers is the result of God's blessing provision or protection for a believer which overflows to those in his periphery. So it's a different dynamic functioning for believers. So if you are a church-age believer... The basis for blessing differs because it's a different contract. We're not not under the Abrahamic covenant per se. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant. Now what happens to understand this is we have to recognize that in God's character, He is perfectly righteous plus R, and He is absolute justice. When man sinned, He went from being plus R, his initial creative state, to minus R. God, in his righteousness, which is the standard of his character, the standard of his integrity, rejects the minus R of man. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God cannot accept any human being because he fails to come up to the standard of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The justice of God is the application of God's standard to his creature. So because man is minus R, the justice of God must condemn man. Now at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, so that our sins were poured out upon him. And the scripture says that he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf as our substitute. So even though Jesus Christ in his deity remains absolute perfect righteousness, in his humanity he bears the penalty for our sins as our substitute. He doesn't become a sinner. It is a judicial imputation. And so he bears the penalty for us. What happens at salvation, and this is something that is so so rarely understood today, what happens at salvation is that when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is then imputed to us so that we receive this perfect righteousness. We still have a sin nature. That sin nature does not diminish in any way. There's not a thing you can do before you're saved that you're not capable of doing after you're saved. Any sin that an unbeliever can commit... Any believer can commit, and many believers do commit. And when you're a brand new baby believer, there's just not a whole lot of experiential or sanctification righteousness in the believer's life. God blesses the believer not on the, on the basis of experiential righteousness. In fact, experiential righteousness or our obedience to God is never the basis. Never the basis. Get that down. It's never the basis for God's blessing. Reading your Bible, coming to Bible class, uh, is never the cause for God's blessing in your life. You're not going to be blessed by God because, well, this year I went to Bible class three times more than I did last year. It just isn't going to happen. 
Even if spiritual growth isn't the cause of blessing. The cause of blessing is always the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why all blessing is always based upon grace. It's never, ever based on what we do. Now, what happens is we start off as a spiritual infant. And as a spiritual infant, God's not going to give us certain blessings because we don't have the capacity for those. But God has determined in eternity past just what blessings He's going to give each one of us. It's grace. It's not dependent on what you do or what you don't do. However, if you don't grow and develop the capacity, then God's not going to distribute that blessing. Just like as a parent, you may decide that that you're going to bestow, let's say you're very wealthy, you're going to bestow $10 million on your oldest child when when, uh, they get old enough. You're not going to give it to them when they're five because it would destroy them. They don't have the capacity. You've already made the decision that it's theirs, but you're not going to give it to them or distribute it to them until they're 25 or 30 because you want to make sure that they have the maturity and the capacity to handle it and that it won't destroy them. And God's the same way. He distributes these blessings to us over time, not because we grow. He's distributing them to us because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he distributes them over time as we develop capacity to handle the blessing. So the point that I'm making here as we're studying blessing by association is that the believer receives the distribution of blessings from God on the basis of grace because he has the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks on that perfect righteousness at salvation, he declares us righteous And that's the word justification. It's not based on, and we're still sinners, it's not based on what we've done, it's based on Christ's character. The same thing happens as we grow. God blesses us not because of what we've done, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's always the righteousness of Christ that's the basis for divine blessing. Now what happens is that as we we advance... And as we become mature, then God distributes these blessings. And when God distributes blessings to the maturing believer, there's always going to be benefit to those around him, spouses, children. It's going to have an impact on perhaps the company he works for, the corporation he works for. There's always an overflow of blessing to those in his periphery. Now, what we said so far under point number, that was point number three. Let me review it. Blessing by association in relation to Christians is the result of God's blessing provision or protection for a believer, and this overflows to those in his periphery. It's the cause is the possession of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Point number four, the biblical basis for understanding this is seen in two cases. The biblical basis for understanding blessing by association is really found in two cases, both in Genesis. Number one is the one we've already discussed already, and that's the provision of the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying unconditionally, I will bless those who bless you. 
He's not saying, I will bless those who bless you when you're obedient to me. He's not saying, I will bless those who bless you when you're walking by my statutes. He's not saying, I will bless those who bless you only when you're in the land and only when you're obedient. He's making an unconditional promise to, to Jews that because they're Jews, because they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is going to bless them. The second example which puts a little meat on the bones, is found two or three chapters from where we are in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. The context is that God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plains because of their sexual perversion. And he has come along with two angels, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, along with two angels, has come and has spent the afternoon with Abraham in his tent. And the two men, after they have dinner, the two men, which are angels, get up and they head toward Sodom. And the Lord stays behind, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And his conclusion is, No, he's not. So he tells Abraham that, In verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Now, have you ever thought about who's making the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah? I think this has to do with the angelic conflict. I think there is a call among the angels for the execution of divine justice. And I back that up because it's angels who are executing the, going to be executing the judgment. So the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according, and we'll just skip all that. And he, he, in other words, God's made a plan, and he's going to execute justice. What we want to focus on is Abraham's response. Again, this is a function of Abraham serving as a source of blessing by association for Lot. He comes to God, and he's asked the question, verse 23, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? General principle, God, if you've got a city here, and he's going to get more specific with these questions, you've got a city here, and there's righteous, and there's wicked. Now, Lot is not a maturing believer. As we've seen already, Lot's involved in all kinds of carnality. You never see a hint of positive volition in Lot. He never makes the right choices. He ends up having incest with his two daughters, and the product of that, those incestuous unions are Moab and Ammon, and they become uh, problems for Israel down through history. So the issue when he says, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked, isn't are you going to, don't interpret that as are you going to destroy the moral with the wicked. It has to do with positional righteousness, that, that Lot is saved. And so he comes up with his first hypothetical in verse 24. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Wouldn't you let the whole town benefit just because of the 50 that are there? Blessing by association. And the Lord says, if I find, in verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. That's the doctrine of blessing by association. And then, I don't want to take the time, but Abraham continues to grind all down until he says to the Lord in verse 30, Let not the Lord be angry, I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found. 
I will, and the Lord says, I wouldn't do it if I found 30 there. And then he goes down to 20, and then down in verse 32 to 10, and then in verse 33, uh, the, the Lord is going to go ahead and execute judgment because there's not even 10 there. It's just Lot and his family. And so God is going to have the angels bring Lot out, and then he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we understand from this the principle of blessing by association. Point number five, blessing by association may also extend to historical heritage. We have two examples. We have an example in 1 Kings 11:12. After Solomon has been so disobedient to the Lord, he, our God comes down and he speaks to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11 and tells him that he is going to tear the kingdom away from him. Verse 11, because you have done this and have not kept my commandment and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, verse 12, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. See, there's historical heritage blessing by association. Solomon, you deserve to lose it now because you have been in such rank carnality and introduced such extreme idolatry into the nation. But for the sake of your father's spiritual growth, for the sake of him, there will be blessing by association, and I won't do it in your lifetime. We see the same kind of thing in the history of our country or actually in the history of Western Europe. The Reformation heritage extends, has extended from the early part of the 16th century down through the 20th century in providing stable institutions for Western Europe and for the United States. In the United States particularly, we are the beneficiaries of, our, of the Puritan heritage because these great believers coming out of the Reformation didn't have a superficial Christianity. Now, their theology wasn't always right, but they understood that the Bible addressed every area of life. It addressed economics, politics, law, history, everything. And so they tried to work out from the Bible a biblical view of government, a biblical view of law, and because they established that, and that's part of our heritage, we have a stable form of government today. What we have to recognize is that divine blessing is always based on grace, never on works, and the blessing is based on that righteousness which we possess from imputed righteousness. Blessing by association is an extension in the church age of John 13, 34, and 35, the new commandment that God gives us that we should love one another even as Christ loved us. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples. We are also, as Abraham was commanded to bless those, to to be a blessing to those around him, believers are through the operation of impersonal and unconditional love for all mankind. Romans 12.14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. That is the application of impersonal love for all mankind. So what we see is in these chapters in Genesis, or in these two episodes in Genesis 14, is that Abraham understands that he is to be a blessing to those around him. And this is, although the commandment hasn't been given yet, the principle is still there, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so that is being exemplified in Abram's spiritual growth. He's learning and applying the principle, and he's going to have an additional opportunity and an additional test. Once he's given the, once he is given this uh, victory over the enemies, and he has now this tremendous spoil, which is his by right of conquest, the next test is how's he going to respond to the victory that God gave him? How is he going to express, is he going to operate in arrogance or in humility? And that's where this next episode focuses, is Abram's response. And there's a lot more to it than simply his response of gratitude. So next time we'll start off looking at the focal point of the the test, which has to do with the truth about tithing. Truth about tithing. Oh, this is going to be fun. Truth about tithing. Because Abram is going to give a tithe to Melchizedek. This is the first tithe in the Scripture. And then from there, we're going to have to deal with this character of Melchizedek, which is one of the most significant figures in all of the Bible and types of Christ. So we have a lot of fun things to go through in the rest of the chapter. We'll get there. Now, next week, I won't be here. So we'll just have to hold right here. That's why I didn't want to get into uh, Melchizedek tonight. We'll just wait. It's a good breaking point. Next week I'll be in, next Tuesday night I will be in Memphis. So you can pray for me when I'm teaching in Memphis. And I'll be back a week the next week. So uh, as far as I can tell, for the next two or three months, that is the last schedule change until probably uh, May or June. So next Tuesday, no Bible class, but there will be class this Thursday, and there will be class Sunday, and there will be class Thursday night of next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for the things that we have seen in Abraham as he functions as a blessing to those around him, applying the principle of impersonal and unconditional love. We pray that we might be challenged by this example in our own periphery, that we might be a blessing to those around us as well as, through spiritual advance, uh, be a source of blessing by association. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.